Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to the podcast. Have you ever had someone tell you you're just too nice and they didn't mean it as a compliment? Or maybe you worry that you've tried to overcompensate at times for the fact that you actually are incredibly nice. But if you let that show, you won't be taken seriously at work or with clients. This topic has always been a bigger challenge for women getting the balance right between going the extra mile to really care about colleagues and to show some vulnerability versus being a pushover can be challenging to navigate. And this is especially true if you struggle with people pleasing, which by the way, let's face it, an awful lot of us do. But people pleasing should not be confused with nice or with adding real value at work. They are not the same thing. This week's guest is the perfect person to help us break all of this down. Fran Hauser has built an incredibly distinguished and diversified career by being not only incredibly good at her job, but by being a legitimate nice girl. She is proof that the power of nice can indeed be a differentiating, timeless quality and one that has a great deal to do with building and sustaining influence in our lives and careers. Friend, I'm really excited to share this conversation with you this week with the amazing Fran Hauser. It is a bit difficult to put Fran's bio into a tidy one-liner because her career has been so unique in its variety. She is incredibly accomplished having started in public accounting at PwC, my former firm, but then she moved into a finance role at Coca-Cola, then on to movie phone back in the early days of digital and the internet, then on to AOL and Time Warner, to People, to InStyle Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, and then breaking out on her own to coach, mentor, and invest in female-founded companies, including a few whose founders you've met on this podcast. In fact, Mara Smith, who is the CEO and founder of Inspiro Tequila, who joined me in episode 179, actually recommended that I reach out to Fran, so a big shout out to Mara. But one aspect of Fran's story that I find particularly interesting and compelling 
is her focus on the power of nice and how she's used that as a differentiating factor in her career from day one. Now, Fran is the author of a book called The Myth of the Nice Girl, Achieving a Career You Love Without Becoming a Person You Hate. You may have read this book. It was a bestseller in 2018 when it was released, and that was at a time when many of the popular career and personal development books were focused on what I like to refer to as toxic confidence. Essentially, you would see titles like Boss Babe, Girl Boss, or maybe titles like Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office, things like that. Fran and I talk about why her approach has actually withstood the test of time in a way that those books really didn't. And we talk about why Fran's approach is really key to something that I talk about on this podcast all the time, building and sustaining influence in your life and career. And Fran illustrates that point so beautifully in the stories that she shares in our conversation. In many respects, this component is often missing from leadership and career advice. And I think you're really, really going to love this dimension of the conversation. Friend, I had actually planned to post this conversation with Fran Hauser a bit later this summer, But after we recorded it and I went back and listened, I just had to share it with you sooner because there is just so much great perspective that I think you will find incredibly helpful right now. I think that's true whether you're just launching, maybe you're a new college grad listening to this conversation, or maybe you're a parent who's just launched a new grad out into the world. Maybe you are relaunching yourself into your career or into the job market, or maybe you're trying to reset your current career or to challenge yourself a bit more within your current position. Regardless of where you find yourself right now, this two-part conversation with Fran will really resonate with you. Now, a few specific themes from part one of this conversation. In addition to the background that I've already given you, Fran and I also talk about how her parents' immigrant story shaped her view of risk-taking in her career. She talks about the importance of laying the groundwork for your pivots. She talks about where her own learning agility stems from. And of course, learning agility is a topic that I talked about back in episode 194. Fran and I also talk about the incredible value that comes from diversifying your network, from actually seeking input from those who are in different career fields or who view the world differently. Friend, you will find both of Fran's books, her latest book, Embrace the Work, Love Your Career, and her 2018 bestseller, The Myth of the Nice Girl, Achieving a Career You Love Without Becoming a Person You Hate. You'll find those in the show notes for this episode. And the best way to find the full show notes for these episodes is to actually go to my website at she said she said podcast.com. There, you will find full transcripts of the conversations as well, every single one of the conversations on this podcast. And of course, those can be especially helpful if you're listening to this podcast while you're driving or doing something else and you're not able to take notes. 
those transcripts are right there along with the show notes. And that's where I'll include a summary and pull out a few key themes so that you know what we'll cover in each conversation. If you aren't currently taking advantage of those things, please check them out because I think if it's an episode that you're really, really into, you're going to love those additional pieces, and I think you'll find them really helpful. If you don't, (laughs) once you check them out, let me know how I can improve them. I'd really love to hear. Now, as I mentioned last week, I tried something a bit new and broke last week's longer conversation with reinvention coaches Dana Hilmer and Wendy Parati into two parts and then released part two midweek. Your feedback on that was so positive, and I really appreciate so many of you weighing in. This week, we're going to do that again, but I'm going to do it a little bit differently. I will release part two of my conversation with Fran on our regular schedule next Sunday. It will be episode 198. Now, in the meantime, if you're looking for more She Said, She Said podcast, perspective, advice, insights, and the like... Be sure to follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook because I regularly share additional tidbits and inspiration there that have resonated with me and that I think you'll like and that hopefully you'll find helpful. You will find me on those platforms, again, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook at Laura Cox Kaplan. But for now, here is part one of my conversation with the amazing Fran Hauser. Fran, welcome to She Said, She Said. Laura, thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. As we talked about before we started, one of the biggest challenges with this, with a conversation with you is that we could go in so many different directions, but, and we will, (laughs) but I want to kick us off focusing on, I mean, you've had this incredibly successful, very unique and very diversified career. And it's culminated with this interesting and unique understanding of the power of nice. People can really be dismissive of this concept of nice. But I'd love for you to talk about how nice became a differentiating factor for you. Hmm. Well, I love that you're leading with that question. Um, So I have to say, you know, over the course of my career, I've done so much mentoring both formal and and informal. And one of the things that kept coming up was just how hard of a time women had reconciling the fact that I was so nice and I was also successful. So they would ask me a lot of questions about that, you know, because there's always been this myth that if you're too nice, you're not going to get ahead. Nice girls don't get the corner office, right? Um, And I've always led with compassion with empathy, with warmth. You know, I really care about my team. Um, And I've just seen it over the years serve me really well. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, when you're nice to people, it builds trust. And, And, you know, once you have a basis of trust, then you can develop a truly deep relationship. And, you know, really at the end of the day, being successful in business is all about relationships. So for me, like, I've always seen like this power in being nice as long as you're not a pushover and you're not a people pleaser Um, and you don't have to be, you know, that my, my whole, like the whole theme of the myth of the nice girl, my first book is that 
you don't have to choose between being nice and being strong and that the most effective leaders actually lead with both qualities. Yeah, I love that. I love that. As you know, um, influence is a theme that runs through this podcast. And I have always felt like the connection between influence and nice, especially how we treat others and how we think about this concept of respect are, are completely interlinked and interwoven. Maybe how do you think about this concept of influence as it relates to nice? You know, I'll share a story because I think this is a, it's a really good example um, of this connection between in influence and nice. So when I was at Time Inc., you know, I was running a division. I was the president of digital and my team was responsible for launching, you know, all of the digital products at the company, you know, so whether it was People Magazine's website or an app for InStyle Magazine and our success was really dependent on the technology team that was run by Mitch Clafe. He was the CIO for the company. Um, and I developed such a wonderful relationship with Mitch. You know, and I, I remember him saying to me, Fran, the only time anybody calls me is to complain that something is not going right. You know, the computer is not working, the Wi-Fi is not working, the website is down. Um, that was the only time that he got, you know, that people would reach out to him. And I always made such an effort to reach out with gratitude. You know, yeah. anytime somebody on his team um, made a really significant contribution or was really helpful or really responsive, I would email him. Sometimes I would email our CEO um, and copy Mitch. Um, and, you know, and I did that very genuinely. I wasn't doing it, you know, strategically or in a way that was manipulative. I was truly really grateful. And um, it got to a point where like, I would walk into his office, to Mitch's office, and he would say to me like, oh my gosh, what are you going to ask me for this time? Because I can't say no to you. And <laughs> literally, I just think this is so important because it's all about resource allocation. Right. And I was able to, like, if it was me and a few other of my peers asking for resources from Mitch's team, right? Because we couldn't do our job without those resources. Yeah. Um, and the the projected ROI was about the same across all these different projects. Guess who was going to get the resources? Me, because I had developed such a great relationship with him. So I think that's just like a really great example of how, you know, being nice and, you know, showing gratitude and warmth and, you know, all of that um, can actually help you influence people to get things done and, and to get to get resources allocated. I love that. I absolutely love that. So you wrote Myth of the Nice Girl in 2018. So it's been about four years since you wrote that. Maybe talk about why you felt so strongly about writing the book. And 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 frankly, why this is, I mean, this is a differentiating factor for you. It's a differentiating factor for a lot of really strong leaders that I know, including so many of the women who come on this podcast but why did people, they, they looked at it like this was like, oh my God, we've never thought about nice before. Like, what, why is that? Well, I know. And what's really like so interesting was that I had written a blog post for Forbes with Denise for story um, called Nice Girls Finish First. Uh -huh. And that blog post ended up going viral. And I started hearing from women all around the world, really, um, just basically saying to me, you know, how much they were struggling with, 
being, if they're too nice at work, they're thought of as a pushover. If they're too strong, they're thought of as a bitch. And they're like trying to balance it and kind of level it all out. And, you know, it just became so clear to me when I started hearing from all these women that this is a real pain point. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that a lot of women are struggling with in terms of how they show up at work and, you know, showing up in a way that's authentic. Um, So that was really the impetus. Once I saw that reaction, it made it so clear to me that like I had always heard this in my network. We we always talked about this. We always talked about nice. And but once I started hearing from people outside of my network, that was the moment that I knew that I needed to write this book, especially because there was nothing like this out there. You know, the, the only books that were out there on nice were the opposite. Literally, it was nice girls don't get the corner office. Like th- those were the books that were out there. So I saw a clear white space in the market. Yeah. You know, in an opening for for this book. And there were moments where I have to be honest, I was a little worried about like, is this message going to land? Because a lot of the books that were out at that time were very much about being a girl boss and, you know, how to be a badass and, you know, like being a boss bitch and this was a very different message. You know, right. th- this message was more of like, show up as yourself. And if you're kind and compassionate and warm, bring all of that to work because that's going to help you. Like yeah. you don't need to take on a different persona. Um, you know, so I was worried. Like I literally remember like the night before the book was launching, um, I had a really hard time falling asleep because I was just thinking like, is this going to like be just a dud? You know, I was picturing it on the bookshelves in a bookstore. And I knew that it was really going to stand out because the message was so different. Uh Um, But it was also such a simple message. Mm -hmm. It's what you just said, right? Like it's such a simple idea, Mm -hmm. but I actually think um, that's why it ended up resonating because so it, so many women were able to relate to it. You know, the book ended up being translated into six languages. It's amazing. um, Including Ukraine. Yeah. Um, so I love hearing from women there. They post on social media. It's amazing. And Audible named it the top business book of the year. Out of all the business books that came out in 2018, amazing. it's such a competitive space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it really is for me, it was such a joy working on it. Um, and it's just the, the impact that it's had in terms of giving women permission to show up um, as themselves. It's, it's just been so rewarding. Yeah. It's so interesting to me looking back to see which of the books from, you know, four or five years ago have withstood the test of time. And to your point, there was a real trend at that point around something that I like to call toxic confidence, right? Mm -hmm. It's really like something that is hyperbolic in some respects. And it, I always found it to be kind of a turnoff. There was something about that, you know, girl boss, boss bitch, whatever you want to call it, genre that was very off-putting to me. And sort of anyone who had accomplished anything, how do you, you're sort of missing pieces there. And so it's interesting to, to look back and see your book has withstood the test of time. It really does feel very timeless because its basis is in the golden rule. It's how you treat other people, right? It's so true. And thank you for saying that. And, you know, it's amazing that, you know, I do a lot of talks um, at companies and organizations for their women's ERG, mm-hmm. um, you know, for their their networking groups. And um, 
I'm still getting asked to do talks on the myth of the nice girl, even though my new book is out. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and a lot of companies are asking me to talk about both, even yeah. though that book has been around for four years now. Yeah. Um, so well, that was one of the other challenges that I alluded to when, when we started talking, um, is the fact that there, that, you know, there isn't anything that's particularly dated in myth of the nice girl, even though it's been out for four years. And so you and I could literally spend hours and hopefully we'll have you back and talk about all the dimensions that we don't get to in this particular conversation. Um, uh, I'd love to pivot and talk about your newest book, which is called Embrace the Work, Love Your Career. It is a workbook of sorts, but I've also heard it described, I think aptly so, as kind of a cleanse for your career. Talk about this book and why you decided to write this. So the idea really came to me um, just about a year ago, a little bit over a year ago, um, you know, when I was just, I remember reading all these articles about how many women had left the workforce and, you know, how many millions more were questioning their purpose and their career path. You know, so many of us are going through an existential crisis right now, right? We're questioning the meaning of everything in our lives, just given what we've been through over the last two years. And, um, and then I was also just hearing from so many friends and colleagues and family who were just really struggling. And they're, you know, they were wondering, like, I don't know, like, is this what I want to be doing forever? And feeling a little bit stuck. And, you know, what I what I realized was that I was actually sitting on so much content mm -hmm. from all of the mentoring that I've done over the years, all of the talks that I've done, where I have like all of these tools and techniques and questions that I ask. Um, you know, and exercises. And I just kind of thought, gosh, it'd be really fun to like pull all of this together into more of a workbook format that will really allow the reader to become the author of their career, you know? So it, and I wanted it to be light and beautiful and interactive because I just feel like we're all carrying so much weight right now. So it was important to me to create a little bit of a different format from your typical 60,000 word narrative book, you know, and I wanted it to be beautifully designed and in four color. Um, and it's really remarkable that we were able to get this book out in a year. I mean, literally from the time that I came up with the idea, you know, to writing it, to designing it, to getting it printed and all of it, um, it got done in a year. Which is and amazing. it was important to me to get it out. You know, I really wanted to get it out, um, quickly. So that I have to tell you, it was so much fun working on because the myth of the nice girl was pure words, you know, it was, it was 60,000 words. Mm -hmm. And this book, I really had to think about the layout, the design, the illustrations. It, it felt more like when I was back in my digital days, working on like a digital product and thinking about user interface and how how the user is going to be in, you know, using, actually experiencing the product. Mm -hmm. I really had to think through every single page um, of this book. So it was, it was really fun. It was a lot of fun to work on. Yeah. I love that. And you talk about drawing a lot from the questions that you were getting from mentees and women that you were advising, but you also have 
this incredibly rich career that I alluded to when we first started. And I'd love to backtrack a bit and get you to talk a bit more about your career journey. You actually started out in public accounting, right? <laughs> Which is, you started out at either PwC, my former yeah. firm, or e yes. right? Yes. So let's sort of take us back, and, and I realize we could spend hours talking about your career, but maybe hit the highlights of kind of how you think about these different career junctures, the pivots, the evolutions that you took. I want to ask you a little bit about sort of taking those career risks, when, which I know you've done multiple times, but maybe give us the highlights of your career journey. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. We were talking a little bit before we got on, and I was saying, you know, I've had a very long career um, with lots of pivots. Um, I think a couple of things that are interesting to note, one is that when I look at, actually, when I look at my bio and my resume, every four years, I ended up either like moving into, um, a new, like a significantly new role within my current company, or I ended up moving to a different company. Something interesting about that four-year mark, um, which kind of makes sense if you think about it, because like year one, you're in learning mode, and then year two, you you kind of become you know productive. Year three, you're really productive, but then you start kind of getting that itch to do something different, right? And year four, you're kind of like, all right, I got it. So I just thought that was something interesting that I wanted to mm-hmm. share with everybody. That was sort of a an insight for me. Um, and the other thing is, even though I've worked in so many different industries, big companies, small companies... The one through line throughout, you know, all of it was that I always loved mentoring women. And I think that's really kind of what led to these books mm-hmm. and the speaking that I'm doing now. Um, you know, I I did have, or I, 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 I'm still in it, but a very varied career. I started in public accounting, did that for four years, um, and then realized I didn't really want to stay. I didn't want to, I didn't want to make partner. That wasn't my thing. There were a lot of peers that knew they wanted to make partner. I really wanted to be in more of an operating role. I wanted to like go to work for a, you know, a company and work in their finance and accounting department. So I ended up going to work for Coca-Cola Enterprises. They were one of my clients. Um, and I did that for four years. And you went in in an accounting role or in, in a I financial did. manager, manager of financial reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was a really, it was a great role and, one of the things that I, I realized in that role that was really important and I actually talk about in Embrace the Work, Love Your Career, um, is that I became known as somebody who could take complicated information and simplify it. That became my brand. And it all started with this quarterly report that we would produce for our board of directors. I basically took this like really thick document and I created this like really cute, like little pamphlet. It was just like eight and a half by 11, one page trifold. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up winning a corporate award for that work. And that became like kind of my personal brand. Hmm. You know, we talk about personal brand and we, you know, and it's so powerful when you can become the go-to for something. And because of that, I ended up getting a really big promotion Um, when I was 27, I was promoted into this role where I was overseeing 140 people. It was a director of finance role. Um, and I was promoted over my peers who had so much more experience than me. Interesting. Which was interesting. And I remember having a conversation with my boss, you know, like why me? And he talked about this, 
the simplifying thing, but he also talked about my ability to develop relationships with people. That all comes from the, the nice, you know, and influence and all of that. Um, and that was great. And I really enjoyed it. But I also realized that I didn't want to stay in finance for forever. And it was really hard for me to think about moving into a different role in a big company because you get siloed. So I actually took a call from an executive recruiter for this early stage company called Movie Phone right. back when it was 777 Film and it was just launching online. This was Web 1.0. This was like 1997. Um, and I'm so glad I took that call because I met with the founders and I basically told them, look, I really like finance, but my goal is to be running all aspects of a business. So if I come to Movie Phone, which is a big risk because I'm leaving one of the world's most admired companies, if I come, you know, will you give me the opportunity to get exposed to different parts of the company so that eventually, you know, I can be a general manager or a president? And they said yes. And that's what's great about smaller companies, right? There's just more yeah. flexibility. It was the, the honestly, that I would say was one of... Um, the best career decisions that I could have made. But probably one of the hardest, I would imagine, be was, because yeah. you must have had people around you saying, whoa, what are you thinking? How did you deal with that? It was hard. I remember getting a call from the CFO in Atlanta of the mm -hmm. Coca-Cola company, um, basically saying like, are you sure you want to do this? Because if you stay here, you are on a path to being on the senior leadership team mm -hmm. at the Coca-Cola company. Um, so much stability. Right. So again, one of the world's most admired companies. Are you sure you want to do this? And I remember having second thoughts. And I remember going back to the founders at Movie Phone um, and saying I was having second thoughts. And then they gave me an even better offer, you know, financially. They bumped up my compensation package. And um, but I really had to take a step back and think about like, if I don't do this now what is my career path going to look like? And the thing is like, I knew that I did not want, I didn't see myself being the CFO of a fortune 500 company. Mm. I just didn't see that. And that would have been the path if I had stayed. I was also really excited about the internet mm. and, and the thought of like, you know, going, going to work for this company where, you know, I could be part of something that, was was really becoming an important part of our culture and the way that we live, you know? I mean, yeah. it was kind of a big deal. Um, so all of that, you know, for, for all of those reasons, I, I decided to make the move. And it ended up being such a great, great decision because we ended up selling Movie Phone to AOL. It got acquired by AOL and the founders retired. Um, at, you know, they were in their early 30s. Um, and I ended up running Movie Phone as a division of AOL. So I, that was my first general manager mm -hmm. role, which was incredible. And then yeah. that opened up, you know, then I, then I moved to Time Inc. And right. I was general manager and then I was president of digital. So going to Movie Phone really started um, not only my general management kind of path, but also my media. You know, that really got me into media and into digital um, and into technology. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was a really important move for me. And then I was at, you know, I was at Time Inc. for 10 years. Yeah. And then the other big career move that I'll talk about is just deciding to leave Time Inc. and going into startup investing. You know, after being there for, for 10 years, um, one of the things that I really realized that I loved about my job 
was because I was in digital, I was meeting with all these startups. I, I met with Rent the Runway before they launched. You know, I was meeting with Facebook. I was meeting with Google. And I loved spending time with the, with these founders and helping them think through their business challenges and their models. And, um, you know, and I was meeting with them because we were striking up partnerships. But I just kind of thought, God, this could be really cool. Like, what if I just decided to invest in startups, advise startups. My kids were really young at the time. They were three years old, 18 months old. And I felt like I wasn't spending enough time with them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, being in a C-suite role at a big company, it was so demanding. Um, and it was, that was, a, talk about a scary, talk about a scary move, you know, leaving a company like Time Inc. to go out on my own. You know, mm -hmm. I just remember thinking like, when I pick up the phone and call someone, I always get a call back, right? Because yeah. when you're attached to a big brand like that, um, but because I had built such a strong network while I was at time with founders, with venture capitalists, you know, with people that worked in technology, having that network really allowed me to transition, um, into startup investing in a pretty seamless way. Like I had already built a name for mm -hmm. myself within that sector and, and community. Um, so that really enabled me to then, you know, to, to start my own thing. And that's right. what I've been doing now since 2014. Yeah, I think that's such an important part of your story in that you, you made the pivot, but you had laid the groundwork to a large degree that you had the platform that you knew you were going to pivot into. And while I'm sure there was probably some self-doubt associated with that. Is this going to work? Am I going to like it? You know, all those sorts of things that any normal person would have. But at the same time, you didn't just pull the plug <laughs> and, and have nothing. You had already laid a lot of groundwork as it related it's, to that pivot. It's so important. And that's the thing. Like, I remember seeing people, my peers, you know, at Time Inc., who were so focused on their job and heads down, like doing great work, you know, kind of in their computer and going to the meetings and doing all the things, which by the way, all of that is obviously really important. You want to do a great job, mm -hmm. but in parallel, you need to be thinking about like, okay, how do I set myself up for success in the future? And that's when like, for me, I just, I realized one day I kind of looked up and realized everybody in my network worked in media. And I needed to branch out. I needed, to, I was really interested in technology. I was really interested in the nonprofit space. And I prioritized building out a network in both of those areas. Um, and, and really like, it was a huge priority for me. I mean, I was taking meetings. I proactively would like look at LinkedIn and like see, you know, interesting people that I wanted to meet with. And if I had, you know, if I could get a warm introduction, like, I really prioritized it. And if I hadn't prioritized it, I don't know if I could have made that move so seamlessly. Yeah. So you're, you kind of, it's important to think about, you know, your job is a part of your career, right? Mm -hmm. But you, you really have to think about both. It's like, how are you setting yourself up for success in your career? That includes building your network. It includes building out your skills. It includes your personal brand. You know, all of that is really important. And that's what I get into in Embrace the Work, Love Your Career. It's you want to be creating value at work. And while you're doing that, laying the groundwork, right, to continue to be successful as you yeah. move through your career. 
We, we talked a few weeks uh, ago on this podcast about this notion of developing learning agility. And it's something that Julie Sweet at Accenture talks about is the number one thing that they look for in new hires, whether they're entry level or or beyond. And you embody this, this notion of learning agility. I'm curious as to where you think that comes from. Where do you think this voracious curiosity and just this sort of inherent notion of constantly challenging yourself in ways that are really outside the box. Like it's not just about sort of the what you're doing now, it's really having this foresight and challenging yourself to be much bigger picture in terms mm -hmm. of what you're learning. You know, I, I actually really think that it stems from my immigrant background. Mm -hmm. You know, Tell me I, about that. Yeah. So I, I was born in Italy um, and my parents moved to New York when I was two um, but, you know, I'm the oldest of four and both of my parents had small businesses. My dad was a stonemason and landscaper. My mother was a tailor, um, but they, Italian was their first language. So I literally ended up working for both of them when I was like seven years old. Like Amazing. I was a translator. I did the invoicing for my dad's business. At seven? I, at seven. In first grade, I was doing invoices. And it's, it's really interesting because I could, it's so funny, I could add, but I couldn't multiply yet. So when I had to, you know, like I could write like monthly maintenance, like monthly lawn maintenance, $300. Sales tax, I couldn't figure out like the 5.75%. So my right. aunt had created a table for me where I could just like pull out the sales tax number and then I added everything up, you know, and we would like mail these invoices out. And, but I, but I did everything. I mean, if my dad had to go find a job, like I had to literally listen on the other phone and write down the directions. And then I would go with him to like find these, you know, find these different job sites. And so I took on a lot of responsibility at a very young age. I was very keenly aware of how hard both of my parents worked um, and how much they sacrificed for all of us. And you know, ended up giving us this amazing life. Um, and I, I think, you know, I think that's a big part of it is I, I just, I academically, I was always very strong. I took, you know, I took school very seriously. Um, I l always have loved to learn, even like, honestly, even in kindergarten when I couldn't speak English and I felt so much like an outsider, you know, like I really felt like I couldn't, I couldn't communicate with the other kids. Um, but so it was just something that I, I just never took for granted because I saw like my parents didn't have an education. My mother had a third grade education and my father like first grade. So wow. they both had elementary school education and they ended up, you know, building these hugely successful businesses despite that. And so I felt like I was given this opportunity, like, oh my gosh, I can actually go to school. You know, I was the first in my family to go to college. So I think all of that, um, you know, really led to just my appreciation for my gratitude mm -hmm. um, for learning, mm -hmm. you know, and, and it, and it just really stayed with me. It's so interesting to me because I, you know, there are a lot of people that a lot of women that I've talked to on this podcast and elsewhere where especially um, folks that have a background similar to yours, where they're first first generation American, 
And there's so much pressure from families, especially when you look at risk taking, where, you know, they've sacrificed and struggled so hard to get to the point where they can send a child to college. And they're like, what do you mean you're not going to be a lawyer anymore? You know, we, we paid for law school or whatever it happens to be. Maybe it's a doctor. But there are a lot of stories like that, that the pressure on somebody to continue to sort of toe the line in that chosen career field can be really tough. What advice do you have for people, someone that may be struggling with something like that, of the sort of, you should do this versus this is really not where my heart is at this point. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's, I just think it's so important. Like if you're not feeling it, you know, if you're not feeling that this is the direction that you want to move in, I think it's really important to stand your ground on that. Because if you think about how much time you're going to spend in college, like majoring in it, you know, and then like, beginning your career in it, you might eventually end up pivoting. Um, I, I just think it's really important to like have a very open and honest dialogue with your parents and, and with your family about that. Um, you know, it's interesting as you were talking, I never thought about this, Laura, un until you, you brought up risk taking. And mm -hmm. I think that's actually one of the reasons why I've been so open to taking risks in my career is because when I look at my parents, I think about how hard it was for them. Like, like if they could make it work, like you think about they, they moved to a different country where they didn't speak the language right. and they created these businesses and they were successful, right? So I think so much of, you know, I just think about so much of my life and my career has been shaped by watching my parents, right? you know, and seeing them. So I just, I wanted to, as you were saying that, it just sort of a light bulb went off for me that I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so open to taking yeah. risks because these risks don't feel anywhere near as big as the risks my parents took. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Hey friend, please be sure to join me next week when we'll continue with part two of my conversation with Fran Hauser. We're gonna pick up right where we left off and we'll dive into her newest book, which is called Embrace the Work, Love Your Career. It's really more workbook or really sort of a combination of book workbook. And I think you're really gonna love that if you've not had a chance to check it out. Fran and I will cover everything from setting boundaries and Fran's what she calls a four square model. We'll also talk about the benefits of working with an executive coach and how that was so helpful to Fran. And we talk about the importance of building in time and space for reflection. Fran will share her advice on how best to prioritize those things that matter most to you so that you make sure that they're getting the attention that they deserve. And then she'll share some incredibly valuable perspective on ways to develop and really differentiate your pitch. Now, remember, if you go to she said, she said podcast.com and you click on this episode, episode 197, you'll find links to both of Fran's books. You'll find some valuable highlights from today's conversation from me, and you'll also find a full transcript. Those things can be really valuable if you wanna dig in a little deeper into the subject matter that we talked about today. I also often will include additional links to other episodes or maybe some reading material that we mentioned 
or some things that I think complement the conversation. So please be sure to check those out. In the meantime, friend, I am grateful you joined me today, and I hope you found this investment in you well worth it. I'll see you next week for part two of my conversation with Fran Hauser. Until then, take care. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.